gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. That. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from The Office with Director of Content Marketing at Active Campaign, Jacob Rudnick. Jacob, how are you? I'm doing great. It's summer Friday, so the weekend is coming up right after this. All good. We're talking the office. It's like one of my favorites of all time, so couldn't be better. Indeed. I'm super excited to chat about the office. We're going to chat active campaign and your background and your content strategy. So let's get into it. Why'd you pick the office? One, I think it's become a, a classic kind of instantly when it was on Netflix. Everybody was watching it. It's a show that I watched. It was one of the last shows I watched weekly, every Thursday with my college friends. And even right after graduating, we all like called each other right after every episode to recap and all that. And so it's a show that changes every rewatch. It's a show with great characters. It's a relatable show because it's about the most mundane thing we do with like a third of our lives. So I don't know there's so many reasons, but it's just the best. Yeah. Why do you think it's, why do you think it's so remarkable? I mean, you talk about picking up the phone and calling your friends. You think about how many people share the memes. You think about how many people, it's like, oh, that reminds me of the episode of The Office. Like, why is this show? Like, literally, it is remarkable. People still talk about it. They send each other these memes. Like, it is still remarkable to this day. You think it's weird that we're all, not we're all, but a lot of us aren't even going to offices anymore and it's still being shared, maybe more so as we've left offices. So I, I don't know if there's some nostalgia there, but I mean, one of the, the reasons it is remarkable is it takes that awful part of like being at the most boring place, right? They have, they picked the perfect, ugly, white walled office they're just so sterile right but they brought it to life and i think it's the people there it's the characters like the humanity within that sterile environment that makes it so remarkable like it's that juxtaposition of those two things and so i don't know every job you have you have you meet weird characters you get these stories you have these things that happen that have nothing to do with the work and i think that's what it's all about so they take this part of our life that's really boring and bring it to life in a way that it kind of is in our own lives too. Meredith, what the heck is The Office? So just act like you don't know any of this, okay? <laughs> um, so The Office is a mockumentary about the daily lives of employees working for Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, which is in Scranton, Pennsylvania. 
And it's a mockumentary, so it has this unique style of being filmed with a single camera. It's a little bit shaky. It zooms in on people for candid expressions, candid responses, reactions. We're talking about the U.S. version, which is based off the original U.K. series, which was created by comedian Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. So that was then adapted for an American audience by SNL writer Greg Daniels, and it was co-produced by his production studio, DDLD Productions, and Reveille Productions in association with Universal Television. The original cast includes Steve Carell, Rain Wilson, John Krasinski, Jenna Fisher, and BJ Novak. And of course, there are all sorts of other people that come in throughout the seasons because there are nine seasons total. And they aired from 2005 to 2013. It's won many, many, many awards, including primetime Emmys, like the Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series and a Golden Globe Award for Best Television Series. And it's now on Peacock for anyone who wants to watch it. There's obviously a million things that we could talk about with The Office. But today we wanted to zoom in on the Benihana Christmas episode specifically, because we could talk about anything with The Office. A million marketing takeaways. But this particular episode is one of your favorites, Jacob. Why is that? I think it is my favorite. Anybody, any of my friends that listen to this will just roll their eyes that I'm, I brought up Benihana Christmas and are making you all talk about it with me. It's one of those episodes that I like put my phone down and get to the edge of my seat and watch, even though I know every word and I know where, who to look at in the background and everything. It's an hour long. I guess, you know, it ends up being 44 minutes with commercials, but it's a two part episode. So you get some more depth than you can get with a traditional sitcom, sitcom episode. You got a bunch of different story arcs. So the office is really likable and it makes sense just because we've been to an office, but it's also a Christmas party episode. We've all done that. They're terrible. Like it's better than working, but also sometimes it's not, right? So it's got that going on. It's got this awesome cold open, like Dwight slams a dead goose on Pam's desk. And like, there's just this great interchange to start. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. No, why, why did you bring that here? Don't worry, she's dead. Oh, wait. He's dead. You got some, like, when you dig into the <laughs> the episode, I, there's little moments, like, Ryan's really funny, and Ryan's just, like, kind of a jerk most of the time and not so funny, but he's got some great funny lines. Ryan, come on, we're going to Asian Hooters. Oh, man, I can't. Why not? I'm not feeling so well. I got a ton of work to do here. MSG allergy, peanut allergy. I just ate there last night. You've got some karaoke at the end that's, like, they do karaoke three or four times throughout the show, but this one's, like, the perfect song choices. You've got the Benny Hanna waitresses and Michael's just like at his worst self. Hey, where's my girl? Is she in the fridge? Where is she hiding? He's got an awful breakup. I would like you to do me the honor of making me your husband. Oh, Michael. What do you say? Can we talk about this in private? I didn't hear you. Can we talk about this in private? Oh, you gotta be kidding. Like, there's so many different layers. Michael's at his peak. Ryan's at his peak. Like, there's great Jim and Michael chemistry at the end. There's the karaoke. There's so many different things. And I had forgotten this. I think it's the first episode I ever saw, too. I kind of forgot. So it was like this, the episode that got me into the show overall. And so... It's remained my favorite for years, for literally over a decade. So I don't know. I could go on forever, but hopefully that's enough reasons on, on why. It calls to mind a few a few different things there that we'll get we'll get into in a little bit. But but so Colin, do you remember 
like what were your thoughts originally watching episodes of the office what are, what are your thoughts on it pretty similar it was just me and me and my college friends and we were just pretty much watch it every night and i i haven't watched the, like every single episode i think my favorite part is going on social media and I'll, you'll come across the random clips of like the bloopers that's like the funnest part for me i could literally sit for hours just watching bloopers of the office for me that's that's my favorite part of it i guess what surround sound means is that right over here chum <laughs> <laughs> two speakers <laughs> damn we have two speakers <laughs> what honey oh jesus this is terrible we'll never finish this episode um check this out folds <laughs> Oh my gosh, they get served to me on Instagram like nonstop. I'm like, what did I what did I click? I, I get them all the time. And now I get them for, for Parks and Rec too. All the time. It's like constantly. But I you know what I think is so funny is like, why do we love that stuff? Like we love bloopers. We love specifically like we love the office bloopers. I think there's like something about these characters that we grew up with that like we f- were part of our lives that then come back and we get to see the actors like actually playing them and break character and like laughing and laughing at the things that we thought were funny or something. I don't know. It's, it's super entertaining. I, I've watched them all the time too. Meredith, what about you? Oh gosh, I can watch and rewatch the office forever and ever. However, I think I actually haven't seen the last couple seasons because once Michael Scott left, I just couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do it. He just was so core to the whole show that I don't know. I had a hard time getting getting along with his replacements. But yeah, I I love it. There's so many, so many like memes and so many like lines that I can take from it and just repeat because it was so memorable. I mean, the fact that Office Ladies, the podcast, I think is like a top like 25 podcast, like most of the time is wild. I mean, it speaks to how massive the audience was and how massive the affinity was for this show. Like, I mean, it's universally beloved like have you ever met someone who's like yeah i tried it didn't like it you know like nobody it's like perfect it's a perfect show so jacob with all of this perfection in mind how can we find some some marketing lessons to glean from from this from the benihana episode i think you we've even touched on some lessons that you could dive into right these like characters and the mundane but zooming in but one that really I thought about as I rewatched this uh, prepping for this, uh, there's a part of the episode is that there's two competing Christmas parties. There's Angela's. It's a little bit uptight. There's going to be snacks, but no booze. She's going to like run this tight ship. I hear Angela's party will have double fudge brownies. It will also have Angela. So double fudge, Angela. And then you got the other, t- the other two, they've got their... Christmas party and there's gonna be karaoke and they've got booze and the, the cupcakes and all this stuff. And so they're competing and it's the, the like C story arc tension. The committee to plan parties invites you to a margarita karaoke Christmas. There's no such thing as the committee to plan parties. There is now, we just started it. Well, you can't just start a committee. You have to have funding. What's your funding? $200. What's ours again? Um, $201. Right. 
and Angela steals the, the karaoke cord. Does your karaoke machine have Christmas songs? Yeah, but we don't have the power cord. Oh, I may have seen it somewhere. So everyone, oh man, this this is terrible. And it feels like that party could fall apart. Angela might win. Like evil may triumph here over the fun party. So instead, Daryl. Hang on though, ladies. You don't need this thing. I'll go grab my synthesizer. And he grabs his keyboard and comes out. And everybody has a better time because Daryl's playing the music. And, you know, it's it's got a more intimate feel. And karaoke goes on. And I'm here to remind you. Of the mess you left when you went away It's not fair to deny me Of the cross I bear that you give to me You, 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 you ought to know Eventually the two parties come back together, whatever. But that's one that, like, it ties to how I think about marketing in general. And in my career, I've had some successes. I've had plenty of failures. And this year I read this book, The Obstacles the Way. It's about stoicism. It's got, I don't know, some cheesy lessons, but all these great leaders and things. But there's some really good nuggets about when something doesn't go your way, when something gets in the way, when there's an obstacle in the title of the book, how do you treat that? Do you just run from it? Do you sit down and cry about it? Or do you go find another answer? And like the biggest successes of my career, when I look at the stuff that we did G2 or Scribe, like they came from an inflection point where something was broken, something was failing. We were flatlining, a competitor was emerging and we went a different way. We like scrapped everything that we thought we knew about content or about whatever it was. And we went a different route. Let's not go replicate what our competitors have done. Let's go find something brand new or a different way of executing this completely. And so to me, that's Daryl being like, don't worry about that. We don't need the karaoke machine at all. I'm, we're going to go print off lyrics from the internet and I'm going to go grab my keyboard and we're just going to have more fun. And it was a better party because of that. So I don't know. That's how I think about marketing. If you're just doing the same thing, if you're doing like, there's a lot of times where you just kind of run your playbook or you keep doing the work that's supposed to be being done. But it's those times that there's a little bit more tension. There's something in the way that, that the best marketing, the best work gets done. So I think that little karaoke chord is, is my, my lesson there. Yeah. I, I love how layered, you know, sitcoms are in general with their like ABC stories and how well the office specifically always comes back around and there's a heart and a love to the office that I think that's why it's so popular. I think that it's because they do and say, especially Michael and Dwight, say the most like ridiculously hurtful, you know, insane things. Let's go over some of these symptoms of marijuana use, shall we? You tell me who this sounds like. Slow moving, inattentive, dull, constantly snacking. Shows a lack of motivation. Hey. But like there is this understanding of like love and support here, even when they're doing things that are the exact opposite. And so you take these stories like Michael's dumped by Carol, so he doesn't want to do anything. And he's trying to be the friend. So he takes him to Benihana, which is like so classic, right? I think we'll start with a round of Nagasaki. 
One part eggnog, three parts sake. The friend that it's like, I'm going to cheer him up. And he chooses Benihana, which is like the most, it's like, I know what's fun for you. It's like going to a Benihana, which is like, you know, a universal sort of, we used to joke back in the day with my friends that like a certain type of person always takes their date, their first date to a Benihana where it's like, oh, I'm going to show him a good time. Like that's class. That's how like you win. Like, oh man, you got the the white sauce and the like orange sauce and like the other stuff going and the and the, the onion ring volcano and the flying shrimp and all that. My compliments to the chef. And you're like, it's all the hits. So they put you in this place, which is like person just got broken up with. I'm already starting to forget what color eyes she has. I can't, okay, I'm going to call her. You know, he's taking him to Benihana to make him feel better. He doesn't want to go to the party, you know, picking up some other people, taking them back to the Christmas party, which is funny. The party's coming together. Like, it's just all these things that are so human and you get to see your favorite characters doing it. So I think like most marketers probably aren't creating like really three-dimensional characters, which they, they probably should be, honestly, but it's pretty hard to replicate. But you can put people in your stories, in your marketing that are in more human moments and not just in work moments, right? Like there's so few scenes in the office that are about work. And it's because we, you know, we we want to do a great job of work. We want to get better at work, but we also just like have these very human moments. And like when you get dumped, like, yeah, you're probably going to go do something with your friends, but sometimes your workmate is like, I'm going to take you out. And I just think that like the way that they tell these different stories in this episode is like so relatable and funny. And again, there's always just like a heart and a love to this that clearly the creators of the show have a relationship with work and with fun and with ridiculousness that like it all just makes it feel very earned as a, as a viewer that you get these super awkward moments and these moments of tension. And then they figure out a way to make it come back around. Digging into sort of the obstacles of the way piece here. I think that it's it's also, it's something that marketers need to do, but it's also something that we need to do with our stories. And I feel like we always put the obstacle as sort of like what your KPI is. And that's not like a good obstacle, right? Like getting 7% better isn't a good obstacle. The way that we talk about business, the way that we write case studies, the way that we do that stuff are generally pretty bad stories. And Jacob, you're a journalist. Why do you think we tell stories that are just not good enough? I think everybody thinks they're a storyteller, and so that's why you get a lot of bad ones. But as marketers, I think I liked your point a lot, that we focus on this KPI and not the feeling. I mean, there's little things in my day-to-day. You ask me to like, I mean, I have to go fix this like broken link on the site. And even though it's gonna be 30 seconds, it feels like the biggest thing of my whole day, right? There's some things that two hours my time don't matter. So like, it's not about that actual number. My actual time is like this, the feeling of the weight of that little thing I have to do. And so as a marketer, you know, we focus on that 7% growth or whatever. It doesn't really matter. That's not the thing, but it's often we should be looking at that pain and the way that people feel. You think about Scry, we had this little Chrome extension that automated your step-by-step guides. And two jobs before that, I was in an agency for a little bit. We had to create SOPs and look at them every single month and recheck them and redo the screen. Oh my gosh, it was the worst thing on, in my entire life. I'd never heard of an SOP at that point. I never wanted to hear about it again. But that feeling of like that one hour of the, the month that was so terrible, if you had told me someone could automate that, I would have paid any amount of money, right? And so that's what Scribe focused on is like, let's 
not, I mean, some, they do have some marketing around how many hours are saved and all this, but automate SOPs is a much better marketing play than save seven hours a month on documentation. Get rid of the pain, get rid of the worst thing in someone's life, make working suck a little bit less, and that's going to be a better marketing. So I don't even know if I answer your question why we tell bad stories. I think we, we focus on the wrong things. I think we think we're better storytellers and we focus on the visuals or we focus on things that don't matter with the stories. I think it's getting down to that humanity. What does a person really want and putting ourselves in those shoes that matter? So uh, a bunch of reasons for bad storytelling, but I think there's some in there and not thinking about the humanity, thinking about our product and why we're so important. Yeah, I think also too that we tell so many stories that are like very insular, like one episode stories and we don't build arcs and we don't build those things. And like this episode is season three, episode 10. We've spent, you know, however many hours already with this group of people. So it just means that much more. Like the stakes are that much higher. Like you said, this is peak Michael, peak Ryan, like peak Angela, like all that stuff. Like you're getting so much work tension at this moment of like, you know, the rival parties and Karen getting kicked off the the party planning committee, like all those things. Like it just, it's very earned. And when you tell a story one time as like a case study or whatever, it's just, you're not going to build as much stuff that's earned there. And I think another thing, and this is a little trivia for you. Do you know who directed this episode? Yeah, it's Harold Ramis. I mean, this is like one of the most famous comedians like ever. And like, that's crazy. I I mean, I didn't know that before we did the prep for this. Like, that's a, that's a crazy thing. So like, even The Office, which makes it feel so, like this show feels so easy and so funny and so, you know, whatever. Like there's like geniuses that are doing the work on this show that were writing, that are directing some of the best, like, you know, comedians like of all time. And I think that that's another thing that I think people, marketers need to sort of think about is not that you need to have a bunch of geniuses working on it, but that this stuff is developed, the craft is developed like over periods of time that is sometimes long. And like, you have to write stories to tell better stories. Like you have to get cracks at the bat. And I think so many times people just like make something, do something in content and go, well, that didn't work. And it's like, it, it takes some time sometimes. Something you just said, Ian, to grab hold of this a little bit, the, the bringing in experts, bringing in these other people is something the office did super well. There's the dinner party episode and to pivot from episode, another iconic one, right? It's just like the most awkward. You either hate it or you love it, but there's a deep dive oral history of that episode. I think it's on GQ or something. It's worth reading. It's 10,000 words. It's unbelievable. But one thing that I always remembered is that they brought in cameramen or camera people from reality TV to shoot that. And then they just told them to kind of follow the scene like a reality show. And they didn't give them all, they kind of generally told them the script, but they didn't say, point the camera over here, point it here. So it feels so real because they grabbed real like reality TV camera people to do that episode. It's like one of those things that makes it an iconic episode because they didn't, it wasn't so scripted. They even, to add to that mockumentary flavor, they really did it that way. And so there's The Office bringing in this director, bringing in those camera people, like they just do it at awesome points and made awesome decisions. And sometimes having talent, like we're talking B2B content, bringing B2C, looking at examples from other places can be an awesome way of, 
of finding great stories and then how do you apply it to your business or something? I don't know. There's something there, but I just love that they took a camera person from something completely different and it's what made a whole nother episode really sing. It's a great point about sort of bringing in other people and it's something that we do, you know, from time to time in marketing that will like maybe an agency or, or a group. Obviously, self-servingly, you should you should bring in Caspian Studios to look at something. But but I do think that it it really helps. Like I know for for our marketing internally that like when we bring in an outsider to look at stuff, it's super helpful. We work with a bunch of different like you know writers and different people like that on both full time like contract capacity. But like when we go, I mean, we've done like sixty plus shows with other companies, and like one of the most helpful pieces for people is just having someone else like look at your marketing and look look through that stuff and like i couldn't imagine what having like someone like harold ramus come in and direct an episode of the show probably did for the showrunners right like that's so helpful to hear how someone else would do it and like take the reins and to do something like that i think is another good lesson to say like Maybe there's some times where you've been doing certain things a certain way. Maybe it's like the way that you do your webinars. You don't always do them a certain way. And like bring someone else in and let them do a webinar their way that they want to do it once in a while. I, I, I think we don't necessarily do that, you know, enough. I'm a huge fan of consistency. I love consistency. I love keeping things consistent with structure and flow and all that. But I do think that bringing in other people to give a second look or to just give them the reins and say, hey, do it the way that you want to do it is something that they do a lot in Hollywood and we don't necessarily do as much in marketing. It's a great point. We, I mean, we have someone on our team who has a background in Hollywood writing and I frequently will ask him for his advice on a blog post or an email I'm sending different, just to, just to get a different perspective. And I've actually learned some of the most fascinating concepts of story writing and building like a story arc from just him having a second set of eyes on it and giving a different perspective. So I, I love that point. Yeah, Jacob, I mean, you came from journalism. So you already came in with me. Maybe you were the person that was brought in from the, from the different set of eyes. Curious how you think about bringing in talent and, and types of talent to look at content marketing. Yeah, my background, I did a master's program in journalism and stumbled my way to content marketing and got lucky that it was G2 crowd and not some company that had like less of a focus and worse leaders or something. So got to grow with the company and learn marketing on the fly. But I've never taken a marketing class. I've never taken a business class, not a single one in my entire life. And so I think that G2, it was one of the ways that they thought partially because we had a series A and a pretty small one and we're very bootstrapped. So it was like finding people who were looking for a career change was a way to do it. But they wanted like we had to take this test. We got to G2 and there's like an aptitude and portion of it. So they're looking for people with high ceilings that might be creative problem solvers, but might not have done it before. So they could pay less, but had some upside. But it really worked out. A ton of us are in these like director plus type of roles, you know, five years after being an entry level role because we learned so quickly and could take on things. And so I very much index that way, probably overly, that I've seen the startups grab people with high upside and let them run with projects maybe earlier than other companies would. And there's some downside to that. There's times to bring in experts. But I really love those experiences. And when you give people the right goal and a little bit of a leash, you can get a lot out of them. But now I'm, you know, I started G2 30 people and that's the way we kind of approached it. I'm act active campaign with 800 people and 
you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of ARR, hundreds of thousands of customers, all this stuff. So it's a much different play. And so I've seen the other side of like, get great talent in and figure out where to use them. Or for this project, we don't have this expertise in-house. We don't have six months to go figure it out. So let's go grab someone who's done it before and you pay a premium, but bring it in. So I think when I look at it across those very two different sides, it's like, I want talented or intelligent or creative. Like I want those things. I listen to podcasts that have nothing to do with marketing, nothing to do with journalism, nothing to do with sports. Just if they're a great podcast, I'll listen. If it's a great blog, I want to subscribe. Like whoever is, I want to hear from the smartest people about the smartest subjects and then figure out how to put that into my life. Like, so go, what I do is you know, take those things and figure out where it can go and just listen to smart people with good ideas. And I don't know, that just seems like an obvious thing, but it's like, I used to be all sports all the time. That's all I cared about. That's why I went into journalism. And I realized like, I don't care about just following 20 Chicago Bulls blogs. I want to hear about all sorts of things across the world with lots of different, just intelligent people. And that's really paid off in marketing. It's let me come into content marketing in a different way. I didn't have all these rules that were in a textbook about how to do it. You know, I could look at the, the magazines I read or the podcasts I listen to and think about how they could apply to a B2B company. And so, yeah, that's, there's a couple ways to do it, but. That's how I think about it. Last piece on the office here. I mean, again, we could talk about it forever and there's a million takeaways. I think one of my favorite all-time episodes is the uh, stress relief, which is uh, in season five, uh, where it starts with, or where Dwight um, does the fake, the fire, fire safety thing. Fire! Oh, fire! Oh my goodness! What's the procedure? It's like literally one of the funniest opens like in TV history. Like Angela's they're throwing the cat up in the ceiling oh my god anyways crash me up but one of the things you mentioned the dinner episode dinner party episode one of the things that the office is most known for is being awkward babe can you just like really whoa we're just like what what can you just sit down seriously i'm just making people laugh yes i was was watching jim's face i was watching jim and and he was laughing no look, smile. Look at him. He's laughing. Michael and Jan seem to be playing their own separate game. And it's called, let's see how uncomfortable we can make our guests. And they're both winning. So I am going to make a run for it. And I was thinking about it as we were prepping for this. Where, how often do you see anything awkward in B2B marketing? I mean, you can make an argument. It's all a little bit awkward. But, but like, it's not something we strive for. We don't strive for like really awkward, tense moments in B2B marketing. Like it's very rare. Whereas our work is full of super awkward, tense moments. Asking for a raise, you know, getting budget from one person, getting something approved, you know, someone not liking it, your board hating an idea, like what, whatever that thing is, an earnings call that goes really poorly, stock going down, you know, stock going up. There's so many moments that are like extremely personal and awkward in work and we never talk about it. And I was just thinking, I was like, if you brought the script to the office, if you brought the, or of the office, the pilot to a B2B marketing team and said, and you know, 20 years ago and said, you should make this show. No B2B company would make this show. It's too racy. It's too awkward. It's too weird it's too heightened but in reality like that's what we are seeking as an audience and i think that like we're so watered down and washed down with some of the stuff that we do and we never take a chance to like find those super awkward moments 
And that like they use like race and gender and all that stuff. But there's a lot of business lessons like in there of, you know, people vying for different jobs and like Daryl's whole arc is like really fascinating. If you were to study it like seriously, you know, like there's lots of really interesting stuff in there that probably taught more people about working in an office than like any marketing has ever done. And so I just think that it's just an interesting note that we don't do that. We don't sort of celebrate those awkward moments in our marketing. And even though it's like something that we kind of crave as as viewers, although sometimes Office was was too cringy, for sure, for me. I think those like awkward, cringe things are, that's, the Office takes them and like makes them more extreme, right, to play it up. But that is why we connected to it, right? Is like we could, we've been at our boss's dinner party or we've been out to drinks with the boss and no one knows how to act or whatever it is, we've been at the Christmas party. And so those are the things, that's why we connect to it is it's real. Oh my gosh, I've been there. That was my coworker X, right? Or I've been at that meeting or whatever it was. So I think you're right. I think like so much of B2B marketing just looks so one note. We get that email, we delete it. We see the ad, we just know it's an ad and scroll past. So how do you like make someone feel heard, right? And awkward is a way, awkward or cringe or I don't know. Those are just human things, right? We do have that all the time. So I think that fits. Switching gears to your marketing. What's your content strategy? So it's different every stop, right? You definitely have to evaluate what you're selling and who you have in the market. Like two months ago, Google changed. Like AI, AI is blowing up and Google changed how search results are surfaced and stuff. So my play at several of my recent stops has been very HubSpot content ask right like publish blogs they rank number one you get really good at that you show people how to you give them a lot of information 75 percent down the page they convert into a trial like that's that's i got very good at doing that you can't just use that forever one hubshot's really good at now they're one of my competitors so we're facing like a behemoth in content in that way to the whole market with ai and search and all that stuff changed so we definitely have some of that play like to me create a lot of content really quickly know the things that matter and what how to optimize for those things on the written side but do a lot of stuff or like experimental things on like short form video i think there's a ton of opportunity there for me it's like the challenge right now at active campaign with a bigger team and just a different stage than scribe is to connect this like capture demand right seo being one of those places let's get hundreds of thousands of people reading our blogs and send them to our trial page or the next piece of content. But how do we actually generate that demand? HubSpot, Salesforce on the CRM side, other people, these are some known names, like Active Campaign is a big name, but it's nothing like those. So how do we differentiate ourselves? How do we not just be cheaper than HubSpot, but how do we stand out in the market? How do we grab something? So we have to use different platforms than blogs to do that. We have to go work with influencers. We have to do live video and really give people deep depth that they can't get anywhere else. So those are two very different strategies that we need to merge and connect to our lifecycle marketing team and our product. And it's a bunch of pieces. To me, it's like capture a ton of demand, really get those systems in place, and then go build more demand in the market. But at Scribe, where we were a brand new product, it was go create a bunch of demand early on and then capture something later. So it's very dependent on stage and company and market. Yeah, and so for for Active Campaign, what's working for you? What are your your top three things that are working, or your favorite pieces of content or campaigns? Yeah, it's a great question. We, I mean, so coming in, we we've had a 
I don't know, kind of a de-emphasis on content over the last couple of years. And we created a ton and kind of let it go to pasture a little bit. So things have been slowly diminishing. And so the things that we've been turning around are like creating a lot of content quickly. We did a, we used AI with some human touch and figure out how to programmatically build out a glossary and create some different types of like blog content that's more formulaic to really expand that. So we're in the early stages. I've been here four months, but seeing good growth and traffic, like 20% growth in our glossary quarter over quarter. And I don't know if that's like, it's not the most exciting metric in the world, but we've turned around like our production and we've done a lot of optimization. When we look at other stuff, we have a ton of success with affiliates and influencers that we have different levels of touch on. But when I came in, one of the things that excited me is there are people in the world of solopreneur types that are creating content about how to use active campaign to automate everything and their one person business, right? They're put, putting that on TikTok, they're creating courses with it. So for me, it's like, we got a ton of traction there without doing much. So like, how do we go find the next hundred of those people and get them building their courses, creating those videos? And so we've had some early success there. That was one of the things we did really well at Scribe. And so we've been able to do that where there's, instead of having to convince people, what is this product? Instead, we're saying, you're already using this start to you know sell this as an affiliate or build this into your your different products and so we've had we've had good success there but i think there's a ton of room to grow to be that like it's a competitive space you know there's clavio and other tools like so how do we become one of those go-to tools for that type of persona i'm excited to see what we can do there yeah what's an example like of like one thing that that you did that worked really well from either the influencer perspective or or another piece of content maybe one of your faves I mean, I think like it's kind of it, it worked at Scribe, it's working at Active Campaign, but like the videos that I think when you're working marketing, you know that they're planted, but the average user doesn't. But like, here's the three tools I use to run my blah, blah, blah business. Like, we can do that across a ton of different verticals and anybody running a small biz. And those do really well. But the, the like, the little insight for us has been finding people who are really engaged with their audience. I mean, it's obvious, but the people that respond to every comment, but they do it with some depth and they really take that time. Those do really well in like, it helps the algorithm, but you can just see when someone actually knows the influencer that they're the video that they get surfaced. Like we can see saves go up on our TikTok videos and things when people have that engagement. So it's, it's finding people that have real trust and then giving them those messages and those simple messages of just, I have these many tools. It turns into this many thousands or millions of dollars a month. Active campaigns, one of them that's like super simple, but it works really nicely. And then it's about finding the, the right influencer to pair with that message. I love that you guys are doing the videos. I've been fascinated with B2B using TikTok recently. So that was pretty interesting that what you just said. So you're saying that you guys have an owned TikTok page and you're working with actual influencers to create content, like you were saying, like the three tips or that kind of stuff? Yeah, so there's a little bit on the own page. I think Scribes is even more, well, you can look at either Scribe or Active Campaign. You want definitely want an own page with content there. People see Scribe somewhere in their algorithm and then go search it in their app. Like, let's keep them there. Let's show them great content and a great product. But actually, what's been most effective is go find marketer, influencer X, pay them $500 or whatever it is. Here's a video. Let's collaborate on what you're going to say. But here's some ideas that have worked. They publish it on their own page. Sometimes they'll put a link in bio. Sometimes they'll say add, but generally just say, I use these tools. Here it is. Or like Scribe was, we created, we had somebody 
internally created an account that didn't look like it was associated with Scribe, just said, here's a Chrome extension you've never heard about. This is her fourth video. She had 10 followers. They were all Scribe employees. 1.6 million views. Very simple video. She took a, she recorded her screen with her phone. It's like terrible quality, but it looked like it belonged on TikTok. 1.6 million views. So then like seeing that and then going to other influencers and finding there's all sorts of different price points, but people with small to medium sized audiences for a couple hundred bucks with the right video can be surfaced in front of tens of thousands of people that don't follow them, but just follow that type of content. So. That's where we primarily work, but I think there is a play to connect that to your own TikTok channel. What we've done on top of that, and this is more inscribed than we've been able to do at Active Campaign so far, but the blog content that we're writing about, let's get an influencer with some repute and then get the right video, but have them create a, a video that connects over to the blog and put the blog right where we want people converting. Our highest converting blog at Scribe was like scared to touch it. You know, you're like, don't mess with anything. This thing's really working. But we put one of those videos in overnight, double pay, like double time on page, like plus 80% click through rate, conversion went up 20%, like instantly because people wanted to see the video. Google's rewarding video being on your page. And so we get to like create demand in the unshort form video with the influencers, then help it like enhance our capture demand and get more eyes on those videos that we know work. And at the same time, you can take those influencer videos if you write your contract right and run those on ads or put those in different places so you can like kind of control and better understand the like who you're putting in front of and stuff. But those like TikTok is very good at getting it in front of people that would be interested in your content. So yeah, specifically because you you sell SMB. Yeah, for both sides, for sure. I think that there would be opportunities to do it in a mid to enterprise, but SMB makes the most sense. Scribe was so perfect for it because it was a brand new category, a tool that no one had heard about before. And it was for SMB, but it could even be used personally. Send a how-to guide of how to set up the Zoom for your friends, like meet up on Friday, right? Like you can do it for anything. And so that's why Scribe works so well is it was like a, a tool that could be used by almost anybody with a computer and a thing nobody had heard about. That's what we're trying to understand with active campaign, email marketing, marketing automation, CRM, much more business and their known categories. So it's a different play. Understanding where that's going to work is, is still a, a work in progress. How do you think about ROI of content marketing? Yeah, a question that I think people see all the time. I think this is one of those <clears throat> things that like move me from that like manager to director level is understanding this and being able to show it. So it inscribe like, we're starting from zero content, like a website with no organic traffic. And so, you know, I, we've hired a bunch of freelancers, publish all this content, and it takes some time. I had to build some models on where to show up, but there's a little bit of trust from leadership that I had knew what I was talking about. But then once we started to see real, we had a free product and then obviously it turned into a pro version, but like it was a freemium model. Once we started to see pro conversions, it's, it was a matter of like, what's the LTV of of one of those pro folks, what do we put in from a content standpoint and like how many, how many pro users and then what's their lifetime value over time. And so we'll created the graph that's basically like, here's the, the input for content, right? We've spent $100,000 publishing content and now we're seeing 15 pro users a month and just these two graphs. And once you showed that to the CEO, like we went from skepticism in whether content marketing was going to work to let's triple our budget. Literally was that conversation because we were able to show like we're breaking even from one piece of like the average piece of content breaks even seven months in. Okay, then let's go throw more gas on that fire. When I was at G2, we went from 
50,000 to 1.5 million visitors a month to our blog in 15 months or something like that. But we weren't able to show that ROI and it ended up like half the team gets laid off. There's just, there was always fights about should we be doing more content? What should we be writing about? Everyone's questioning the topics because we weren't able to do that. We didn't have like that pro user. We were doing SEO for different purposes. And so when you can show that you have upside, you get promoted, you get better jobs, whatever. When you can't show it, your team gets laid off, your budget gets taken away, you're always fighting. And so that was one simple way with blogs, how to show it. But that's how I think about it. What's coming in and what's going on. And let's project that over time. And SEO is great because I could say we did that this month. That's going to happen forever. So let's project the next two years and how much ROI is coming from that content. Yeah, I mean, SEO aside, which I think is a little bit more numbers driven than like other types of content marketing that's more aligned to brand. Anytime you can put data in, that's great. And I think a lot of times you're competing with spending dollars on Google and Facebook. And like that you can get to the dollar, but that doesn't mean it's the best use of the dollars, right? Like that's that's the hard thing. And so when you say something like every, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but like every how-to that you have on your website should also have like a short video snippet from an influencer on there because that's that could potentially 2x the effectiveness of that content. Like that's one of those things where that is trackable and is like really cool. But like, that's arguably like doing those influencer campaigns is arguably brand marketing. Like those are not pure acquisition type initiatives. And so it's just interesting to hear you say, figure out ways to get a little bit more of a numbers driven. Like that 1.6 million things. I'm sure you got this question when you did that video. Somebody probably went, well, are those the right people? And you're like, I don't know. But like 1.6 million people watched a video that's pretty much exactly what we want them to be watching, right? It's like, yeah, but what if those are all people that are never going to buy from us? And it's like, I mean, I mean, what do you want me to say? Like people are watching our stuff. Like that's, that's pretty important. Yeah. I think you bring up great points like the, and having talked about influencer already, I think it's a great like counterpoint to the SEO. TikTok, unless someone puts a link in a bio, we don't see yep. any attribution because there's no link on that page. They talk about scribe there's, or active campaign. There's no link to click. So they're going, coming from Google and it looks like a direct organic or a direct search or, you know, a branded organic search it has nothing to do with those things, right? It has nothing to do with my SEO abilities. It was that we launched an influencer campaign. And so there's like, I'm fighting this battle right now. Like, how do we justify the spend or how do we prove it out or whatever? It's tough with active campaign. There's so much noise. We're doing so much marketing. There's so much stuff happening that like, even if we have a 1.6 million view video, we won't see a spike in our traffic, maybe a little spike, but like, you know, Scribe brand new, we saw a spike instantly. We could say, whoa, 2000 people signed up today and they didn't yesterday. That was only from that video. Bigger company, much tougher. But like, there's a few ways, like one, you need some, some trust from, you know, CMO, CEO level to see this, but we've done things like, you know, the self attribution that's like becoming more popular, but how did you hear about us? And People, are they saying, I saw you in that Google ad? Or are they saying, I saw you from this TikTok video? It often doesn't happen in your first 10 videos. And so you need to like have some trust and build that out and just see those really early signals. But you won't have perfect attribution. We don't with TikTok. And it is a building of that trust and I don't know, hearing from others who have done it. But yeah, you, you got to find those. I think when we're looking at blogs, even there's people who read a blog and sign up read a blog and turn into a paying customer, but that's not the average person too. So right now we're trying to build attribution models. How do we 
show that somebody who became a qualified leader or whatever did see two blogs first over the last few months, or they read this email or whatever it is. So you're just trying to combine all this data in a way to show that, but it's an imperfect science, especially when you get to some channels. And because you're not going to get a subscriber, which like obviously active campaign, you know, we're a customer, subscribers are super important. Sending emails is extremely important. But like there are more quote unquote top of funnel, which is really not top of funnel. It's like they could be at the bottom of the funnel, they could be in the middle of funnel, but giving them like my favorite marketing, one of my favorite marketing lessons is Chandar, the CMO of Koopa says, paint the skies Koopa blue. It's like everywhere you look, you want them to see your brand, right? And like, that's what TikTok type efforts are doing. That's what influencer efforts are doing. That's what your blog is doing is like, everywhere you look, you're seeing this company. That is super valuable because 13 impressions still equal a sale, right? So like you need to do those. And if your only impressions are just like on Google or just on Facebook and there's no human beings behind it, like you need to figure that stuff out. Now, hopefully you're running ads, like you said, like video customer testimonials, all sorts of cool stuff. But it's just, it's, it's one of those things that I think is, is hard to, hard to track the value of that halo effect. Jacob, awesome having you on the show. Really appreciate it. Any final thoughts? No, I've, I've enjoyed talking about The Office. I think I'm going to go, go do a full rewatch after this. So my wife is going to get subjected to that for sure. But otherwise, no, I, I'll be looking at it through a different lens now, right? What's the, the marketing lesson there? But otherwise, it's just been fun to chat with you all. Thanks so much for our listeners. You can go to activecampaign.com and check it out. We're customers. We love y'all. It's a, it's a great product. And Jacob, will chat soon. Awesome. Thanks, y'all. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, Colin Stamps, our podcast launch manager, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. <laughs>